Thank you very much, Marcus. It's always a joy to have you here with us. Good morning to all of you. And it is a beautiful morning out there, isn't it, compared to what we've had the last couple of days. So it's a great joy to be with you on this morning, the Feast of St. Benedict. Uh, great, the great St. Benedict, who through his rule and monastic family did so much to evangelize and civilize the world during what was a very dark and difficult time. As Charles Dickens wrote, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, we had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was very much like the present period, end quote. Kind of captures it, doesn't it? But it is such a joy to see so many of you here today. This is, this is about our capacity. We can't take any more. Uh, but it's so great to see so many here who want to come and share together our common faith. I'm reminded that when St. Paul arrived in Corinth after a not-so-successful outing in Athens, the hostility of some of the Jews and the corruption of the surrounding paganism in that seaport town of Corinth led him to hesitate about proclaiming the gospel there in that city. But that night our Lord stood beside him and said, Do not fear. Be not silent. Speak out. There are many in this city who are my friends. So I thank you for being here. That's the way I feel today, being with you all. Now despite what one hears in the media, even just lately, there is great continuity in papal teaching on our topic today. We should never forget that Cardinal Bergoglio, now Pope Francis, was deeply formed by Blessed Paul VI, by Saint John Paul II, and deeply influenced by Benedict XVI. So what I'd like to do with you this morning in our prayerful reflection is I'd like to take Pope Francis's powerful exhortation, Evangelii Gaudium, the joy of the gospel as our guide. Because there is so much misunderstanding about what he taught and what he continues to teach. What I'd like to do is lay the foundation for our reflection together by doing three things with you. First, what does it really mean to encounter Christ? How do we do that? Secondly, what role does apologetics play in that encounter? And how do those two things relate to the new evangelization? So in this special time that we're gathered together here on our campus, we have to remember that believers around the world are all being called to renew their commitment to the faith that is always the same, yet the source of ever new life, recalling always that Jesus Christ, yesterday, today, and forever, the same. So looking at part one, encountering Christ, 
at the opening of that exhortation, and I want to share with you some of the Holy Father's words, because a lot of times people now are just hearing press reports, snippets, taken out of context. The documents are beautiful and profound. He starts the exhortation crying out, the joy of the gospel fills the hearts and lives of all who encounter Jesus. And then he continues, I invite all Christians everywhere at this very moment to a renewed personal encounter with Jesus Christ, or at least openness to letting him encounter them. I ask all of you to do this unfailingly each day. It's not a one-time thing. Each day. No one should think that this invitation is not meant for him or her, since no one is excluded from the joy brought by the Lord. The Lord does not disappoint those who take this risk. Whenever we take a step towards Jesus, he writes, we come to realize that he is already there waiting for us with open arms. Isn't that beautiful? He's already there. You wouldn't even be drawn by grace unless he had already given you the grace to come to him. Our Christian joy drinks from the wellspring of his brimming heart. He loves us so much. Let us recall that after the bitter passion of our Lord, an angel spoke to Mary Magdalene that Easter morn and sent a message telling them words of great consolation. Remember the angel said to Mary Magdalene, and go quickly, go in haste, go quickly. Tell his disciples that he has risen and behold, he goes before you into Galilee, and there you shall see him. I always took consolation in Galilee to leave the hostility and the tension of Jerusalem, the site of the passion, argument, bitterness, and return to the site where they first encountered him. Each and every one of us in this room this morning have a Galilee. We all have our Galilee, that place where we first encountered his love. Where was it for you? Think for a moment. Where did you first encounter the love of Jesus Christ? On your mother's knee, first communion, act of charity. Where was it for you? When did you really encounter his love? And once you figure that out, go there again. It's a good thing to go back and revisit that that first love that you encountered there, that first time you felt that caress and that you knew that you were loved. For me, it was a Christmas morning. I hadn't been good that Advent, and yet there was so much waiting for there, I knew that love was unconditional because Jesus came, and that's what my parents wanted me to remember. I never tire repeating the words of Benedict XVI, which take us to the very heart of the gospel. Being a Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, but the encounter with an event, a person, which gives life a new horizon and a decisive direction. Now in the early church, credo was the verb, verb form of the noun for faith. The Latin root means, I give my heart to, when you say the creed, credo, all right? It refers to the heart. It means, in a certain sense, I entrust. I entrust. In the giving of our heart, credo means I'm committing my loyalty to when you say, I believe. So it involves the head, 
and it involves the heart, the affection. When we pray credo at the beginning of the creed, we're really saying, I give my heart to God. I give the core of my being, everything that I am. Our encounter with the Lord comes through faith. And right now, ask yourself, what could be more important in your life and my life than our Catholic faith? Is there anything as important as that? It is the foundation of who we are as Catholic Christians, and it is a gracious gift from a loving God who shows us because he's given us that faith. Yet in our contemporary world, we're increasingly vulnerable to secular influences that pull us away from our relationship with God. But from the beginning of their pontificate, St. John Paul II, Pope Benedict, and Pope Francis have worked together all of God's people into a fuller communion with one another and a deeper relationship with our risen Lord. So this conference is a time for all of us to renew our personal relationship with Jesus and recommit ourselves to the church, which is not just a political institution. So many times it's costly in the press treated as just a political institution. We know as Catholics that And we are called to give ourselves more fully to God by professing our faith in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, that faith which is expressed every time we profess the creed. This summer conference is a time to reflect upon that gift of faith, to go back to your Galilee and to renew that sense and that experience and encounter him again, for he's always there waiting to greet us with open arms. It is a time to deepen our knowledge and understanding of the teachings of our church, to read, reflect, and pray with the sacred scriptures where he speaks to us today, and to nourish and strengthen our faith through the Holy Eucharist. That's why we're always breaking for Mass, the source and summit of our spiritual life, the Eucharist, the gift of his love, the gift of his heart. And then also to open the door of faith to other people. You know, throughout the gospel, Jesus is always encouraging his disciples to a strong and unwavering faith. That's what he wants. It's so pleasing when he encounters strong and unwavering faith. He rebukes his disciples for having little faith and demonstrates the glorious power of God for those who believe. Remember when a storm arises that they're out at sea, the apostles begin to panic in fear. He's asleep in the boat. Who's guiding us? Who's protecting us? And then he wakes up and says, Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then he rises. And isn't that his He rose. Interesting choice of words. He rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there came a great calm. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> what a beautiful expression. With Christ, there is a great calm. Even in difficulties, agitations, at the deepest level of our being, there's a serenity because we're with him, and nobody, even the federal government, cannot take that away from us. Okay. <clears throat> Jesus also, you'll notice, links his faith to his healing miracles. Remember in Mark's Gospel, we meet Bartimaeus, a blind man who had heard about Jesus 
and his miracles and hoped that Jesus might help him recover his sight. And our Lord's heart was so moved with compassion, we are told, upon hearing him and seeing him. And Jesus said to him, go your way. and followed him on the way. It is interesting to note that it's the blind man, Bartimaeus, not the crowd, who really sees who Jesus is with the eyes of faith. Because when he calls out to Jesus, he calls him Son of David, which is a messianic title. He's acknowledging that he is the Messiah. Have mercy on me, which is a divine attribute. Have mercy on me. It's interesting to note that on 9-11 in New York City, down in the bowels of that city in a subway station, it was filled with smoke and people could not see. People were gasping for air and they were panicking. And then one man whom they could not see cried out, follow me, and holding hands, everyone sort of followed hands, and he kept talking, stay with me, stay with me. And he led everyone in that station all the way up to the surface. And when they finally got to the surface, it was only then that he noticed that that man had a white cane. The letter to Hebrews defines faith as the evidence for things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Remember, conviction, evidence. And today, we, like the apostles in Luke's gospel, need to cry out to Jesus, increase our faith. In this age, increase our faith that we might come to know believe and encounter the one true God manifested in Jesus Christ. Now, how do we encounter him? Some ways. Go to your Galilee. Frequently, prayerfully recite the creed in an age of unbelief. One of the reasons why Pope Benedict proclaimed that year of faith, that was for Catholics everywhere because we can't be witnesses unless our faith is strong. So frequently and prayerfully reciting the creed. I believe in God, Father Almighty, Creator, of heaven and earth. Then, of course, deep daily prayer, opening our heart to God, which leads to deeper faith. Deeper faith leads to deeper conviction and also a more compassionate heart because it's the love that will ultimately win people over, the love motivated by our faith when they see the faith in action. Enter more deeply into the mystery of the holy sacrifice of the Mass, spending time before Mass, getting there early, especially today, keep on schedule, all right? But getting there early, but then also lingering after Mass, spending time in his presence. Study the teachings of the church, especially a prayerful reading of the catechism of the Catholic Church. What a great gift we have in the catechism. And then finding ways to serve the poor, the lonely, and the marginalized in our lives. And that doesn't always mean going out to a different country. Many times, the most lonely people, the most marginalized, can be members of our own family in need of reconciliation, acts of kindness, friends, associates at work, people we meet in our day-to-day -day life. But you will find we can always do more in our spiritual life. One can always be young. It doesn't matter how old you are. You can always be young spiritually. I remember serving the old mass as a, as a young boy and being right next to this older priest, 6.30 Mass, you know, and intro ibo ad altare dei, I will go to the altar God, and then responding with the priest, a deum qui letificat, juventutem meum, to the God who gives joy to my youth. 
and then you'd see that old priest sort of restored and then springing up the steps to begin the sacrifice. It was a beautiful thing to see, that youthful quality in those who believe and love our Lord. But these things will lead to a deeper encounter with the risen Lord, who is the light of faith. Remember, it is a person-to-person, it is a heart-to-heart encounter with the one who loves us, who loves us. It's most important that we as Catholics approach our faith with great joy and celebration. As Pope Francis observes, joy is tied to our faith. The gospel, radiant with the glory of Christ's cross, constantly invites us to rejoice. A few examples that Pope Francis brings up will suffice. Rejoice is the angel's greeting to Mary at the Annunciation. Mary's visit to Elizabeth makes John leap for joy in his mother's womb. In her song of praise, Mary proclaims, My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. When Jesus begins his ministry, John the Baptist cries out, For this reason, my joy is made complete as he sees Jesus go forward. Jesus himself rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. His message brings joy to us. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Our Christian joy drinks from the wellspring of that brimming heart. And then he goes on and he says, I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And then the Pope asked, why should we not also enter into this great stream of joy that flows from the gospel, that flows from our faith? Now, the fruits of this summer conference will be seen if we do what we're supposed to today in a strengthened commitment to God and also to one another, to our brothers and sisters. When we reach out in compassion to help a brother or sister or a neighbor in need, we are bearing witness to the light of Christ. The light of Christ is shining through us. When we share our faith as bold disciples of Jesus, fruit will be reflected in our efforts. Even if we don't see it immediately, there will be fruit. Pope Francis tells us, and I quote, The new evangelization calls for personal involvement on the part of each of the baptized. Every Christian is challenged here and now to be actively engaged in evangelization. Indeed, anyone who has truly experienced God's saving love does not need much time or lengthy training to go out and proclaim that love. Some of us, oh, I can't do this. I'm not worthy of this. He says, every Christian is a missionary to the extent that he or she has encountered the love of God. If we are not convinced Let us look at those first disciples who immediately after encountering the gaze of Jesus went forth to proclaim him joyfully, crying out, we have found the Messiah. That's what we need to say. We have found the Messiah, the answer to life. The Samaritan woman just encounters him briefly at the well, and what does she do? She goes to the town and says, I have found the Messiah. She becomes a missionary immediately. So too St. Paul, after his encounter with Jesus, when his sight is returned, immediately proclaimed Jesus. So the Pope ends up asking a question, what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? Sometimes Catholic evangelization can be summed up in Mark chapter 1, verse 44, where Jesus says, see that you tell no one. (laughs) That's not what we're talking about here, all right? 
when we receive the Holy Eucharist on Sunday, or even daily if we can, because as Father Hardin said, only heroic Christians are going to survive today. So daily Eucharist. We can be transformed by the real presence of the risen Lord and go forth to live more fully as his disciples. We're invited to rediscover our faith and in the words of Pope Benedict, to become credible and joy-filled witnesses to the risen Lord in the world today. Remember, the first thing that Jesus said to his disciples, his first word was, come. Remember that? Come, learn of me. Where are you staying? Come and see, beckoning. What's his last words? Go. Go, you got it. Go, go out into the world. So the summer conference today is intended to contribute to that renewed conversion to the Lord Jesus, a rediscovery of our faith, so that members of the church will be those credible and joyful witnesses, opening the door of faith. As Pope Benedict taught, faith grows when it is lived as an experience of love received, and when it is communicated as an experience of grace and joy. It makes us fruitful because it expands our hearts and our hope. So much in the world tries to strip hope away from us, and yet hope comes from our faith. It enables us to bear life-giving witness, opens hearts and minds. So, the new evangelization is really the work of the whole church. And the new evangelization, when we talk about the new evangelization, it calls us not just to a belief in Christ, as important as that is, that's absolutely essential, we've got to believe in him, but we're called to live with him. We're to have a life with Christ. I live, no, not I. Christ lives in me, as the great St. Paul said. A conversion of heart and head, which grows deeper and more profound over the years, like a good friendship or like a good marriage. I just visited my folks just two weeks ago. They live over in Warrington, Virginia. Happy to share with you that in just uh, two months, they will be celebrating their 67th wedding anniversary, 67 years as man and wife. It's a beautiful thing to see. The problem is that so many in our church are really living in what we would have to describe as a loveless marriage with Christ. You know, they're Catholic, but they haven't fallen in love. We need to fall in love, to grow in love, to walk in love with a God who loves us. Because it's really true, isn't it absolutely true for each and every one of us? When you know Jesus, when you know who he is, when we really reflect on what he has done for us while we were sinners, what it really cost him in his life, in that passion, in that agony, in that crucifixion, and what he has given us, and what he calls us to, how can we not love? And if you love, you have to go out. Listen again to the words of Pope Francis from that beautiful exhortation. The primary reason for evangelizing is the love of Jesus, which we have received, the experience of salvation, which urges us to even greater love for him. What kind of love would not feel the need to speak of the beloved, to point him out, to make him known? If we do not feel an intense desire to share this love, we need to pray insistently that he will once more touch our hearts. We need to implore his grace daily, asking him to open our cold 
and selfish hearts, to shaken up our lukewarm and superficial existence. And listen to how he closes this. Standing before him with open hearts, letting him look at us. We see that gaze of love which Nathaniel glimpsed on the day when Jesus said to him, I saw you under the fig tree. How good it is to stand before a crucifix or on our knees before the blessed sacrament, this is the Pope, and simply to be in his presence. Now, having looked at faith and encounter, let's go to part two that I wanted to discuss. What does the role of apologetics play in the encounter and in the new evangelization? We can even ask more radically, radically whatever happened to Catholic apologetics? It used to be such a big part of what we did as a church. G.K. Chesterton once said that the problem with modern man is not that he did not believe in anything, but that he believes in everything. The latest fad, the latest diet, the latest health. You know, butter's bad for you. Now butter is good for you. Coffee's bad for you. Now caffeine is great. It prevents cancer. I mean, you know. Today, a widespread hunger for vital religious experience, whether through cults, new age movements, or even more traditional religious forms, bears witness to the exhaustion of modern secular humanism. The ever-present danger that many people can fall into, as Chesterton suggests, is that men will subscribe to the easy answers of cults or a liberalized Christianity that merely baptizes current cultural fads rather than accepting the challenge of Jesus Christ and his church. Now, man has always thought, throughout history, has always tried to defend and protect those things that he holds dear. We want to defend our home. We want to defend our families, our children. We want to defend our country. We also want to defend God. We have defended those things which we love. But you know, the truth is one of those powerful, precious things that needs to be defended and all men are called to guard the truth and to speak the truth. Catholics throughout their history have recognized God as the supreme truth. This truth found full expression in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Our Lord reveals to us that he is incarnate truth. And the truth concerning his person he entrusted to his bride, his church. So the essential task of the church is to propagate and proclaim the good news, propagate and proclaim it, be out there spreading it, but then also to preserve and to guard both the truth of Christ's person and his message. Catholics in a special way, because we have the faith, are called to love the truth, whether it's natural truth or supernatural truth, and to submit to its sovereignty. The traditional Catholic apologetic sprang from a knowledge and love for truth. Whenever it was tracked down through the centuries, Catholics have responded to defend the truth. And it is this passionate love of truth that led to the development of that branch of theological science called apologetics, which means apologia, to defend oneself. Catholic apologetics then is that branch of theology which seeks to explain and to verify the Catholic faith as reasonable and true. Now it was interesting, during the year of faith, very few did this in the church, but the Sacred Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith issued a document 
where they asked dioceses around the world to prepare apologetic tracts, hadn't seen that word for a long time, to prepare apologetic tracts for Catholics so they could give reasons for the hope that is within them. That's how important it was. Now, much of the New Testament, beginning with the Gospel of St. Matthew, is even written in an apologetic genre. It should not surprise us to find the greatest minds of the church seeking to defend the truth. Great men and women. St. Irenaeus, St. Justin the Martyr, St. Catherine of Alexandria, the great philosopher, St. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Robert Bellarmine, outstanding examples. And in more recent times, in the English language, John Henry Cardinal Newman, G.K. Chesterton, Hilaire Belloc, Orestes Brownson, oftentimes forgotten, but a brilliant writer, Christopher Dawson, the great Frank Sheed and his wife, Maisie Ward, great apologist, the venerable Fulton Sheen. And even today we have some great ones. Think of Carl Keating, Father Spitzer, Father Robert Barron, a Mary Beth Bonacci. And of course today we have two of the best with us, Patrick Madrid and Scott Hahn. But there are so many others. So why is it today when the church is being attacked and buffeted and pushed in so many different directions is that we've lost the art of apologetics? Certainly the inroads of a Kantian subjectivity and absurd moral relativism has weakened our sense of the truth. Today you'll notice we can only speak of your truth, my truth, but you can never speak of the truth, the truth, objectivity, objective truth. These philosophical errors have worked their way into contemporary theology, and today we're being oppressed by what Pope Benedict called the dictatorship of relativism. Everything's relative, nothing is true, which of course is self-refuting, because you're saying everything is relative, that's an absolute truth. You've just refuted what you've said, all right? But anyway. The misinterpretation of a number of conciliar documents of Vatican II, particularly the decree on ecumenism, has had a devastating impact on apologetics, but even on the fundamental missionary nature of our church, offering a false hermeneutic of discontinuity, as Pope Benedict referred to it. Pope St. John Paul II, in his encyclical Redemptor Hominis, rejects this false understanding, as did Pope Francis in Lumen Fidei and also in Evangelium Gaudium. The modern age is always trying to promote a false irenicism and the error that all religions, all denominations are to be put on the same level. As if the fullness of truth which is found in our Catholic faith does not impose itself in a special way. These errors have become so common that the great apologetic tradition seems dated. We're living in the age of the emotive will. Everything is based upon emotion and what you will. I want what I want when I want it, and I want it now, regardless of whether it's true or whether it's good or whether it's beautiful. If the crisis of modernity is to be addressed, Catholics have to return to their theological, philosophical, historical, and aesthetic roots. And that's one of the reasons why Christendom College was established and continues to grow, and thanks be to God, will continue to grow for many years to come. Pope Francis actually speaks about apologetics in his exhortation. He says, <clears throat> proclaiming the gospel message to different cultures also involves proclaiming it to professional, scientific, and academic circles. This means an encounter between faith, 
reason, and the sciences with a view to, a, to a developing new approaches and arguments on issues of credibility. A creative apologetics, he says, which would encourage greater openness to the gospel on the part of all. When certain categories of reason and the science are taken up into the proclamation of the message, and that's what we do in apologetics, these categories then become tools of evangelization. Water is changed into wine. Whatever is taken up is not just redeemed, the Pope says, but becomes an instrument of the spirit for enlightening and renewing the world. And that's what we want. So we need a new apologetics. Given the vicious attack upon the faith from secular humanism, the resurgence of Protestant fundamentalism in certain parts of our world in Latin America, also in Africa, we need a defense that can grapple with these issues in our age. Now responding to this need in this conference today, we are trying to restore and advance an active, a dynamic orthodoxy in the great tradition of Catholic apologetics. St. Augustine stated, faith is nothing else but thinking with assent. Notice the thought, the intellect is involved. We are made for truth and the knowledge of truth. Remember, an open mind is not a perfection. It's a mind still searching. What we want is to have a discerning mind, a mind that can bite on something and take it in. So in more technical language, faith is the assent of the intellect in cooperation with the will under the influence of grace to God's revelation of himself to us. That's what faith is. And we learn about God through revelation and also through reason. Revelation is what God has told us about himself as it's found in scripture and tradition, as both are interpreted by the church founded by Christ who is God. Reason is the means by which we can know the existence and the attributes of God, the immortality of the soul, and the principles of natural law and other basic truths. Our faith is not limited to what we can know through reason. As the great St. Thomas Aquinas, the universal doctor, cautions us, he says, when you debate with unbelievers, be warned to begin with against striving to demonstrate the articles of faith. That would be to minimize their grandeur, for they surpass the minds of angels, let alone of man. We believe them because God reveals them. Your intention should be to defend the faith, not to prove it up to the hill. So what we can do is remove obstacles to an individual's full ascent to faith by showing that nothing in the faith is inconsistent with reason. Let us recall the teaching of the first Vatican Council, which solemnly and clearly taught, and I quote, remember there was Vatican I, that's how you have to get to Vatican I before you get to Vatican II. Vatican I said, there can never be any real disagreement between faith and reason, because it's the same God who reveals mysteries and infuses faith and has put the light of human reason into the human soul. Now, Vatican I, God cannot deny himself any more than truth can ever contradict the truth. However, the chief source of this merely apparent contradiction lies in the fact that the dogmas of the faith have not been understood and explained according to the mind of the church, or that deceptive assertions of opinions are accepted as axioms of reason." End quote from Vatican I. And that's why Thomas, again, in his Summa, wants to caution us. 
A man should remind himself that an object of faith is not scientifically demonstrable, lest presuming to demonstrate what is of faith, he should produce inconclusive reasons and offer occasion for unbelievers to scoff at a faith based on such grounds. So the basic idea of apologetics is faith-seeking understanding. It is a systematic reason defense of the faith. It's really not the art of making converts. God alone gives faith. That's why Pope Francis always reminds us that salvation and faith is the gift of God's mercy. We don't merit it. We cannot earn it. And the primacy of grace, recognizing that whatever we do requires God's grace to be at work in order to make the work fruitful. As Father Tanqueray, great spiritual writer, if you've never heard of him, write his name down. Father Tanqueray, you spell it just like one of the best gins you can buy, all right? <laughs> Nothing like it. Actually, sometimes a Tanqueray martini can help apologetics and can help dialogue. <laughs> but Father Tanqueray observes, and I quote, Apologetics leads to the credibility and the credentity of the Catholic religion. This is, so to speak, the vestibule or the entrance to faith. Credibility is the capacity of any truth to be believed in as much as it is approved by most certain signs, which are called motives of credibility, that this truth has been revealed by God. The judgment of credentity declares that this truth must be believed with divine faith now that its credentity has been established. Apologetics of itself is not sufficient for producing faith. Faith is primarily a gift of God and presupposes goodwill. Therefore, that one may be led to faith, the motives of credibility must be offered to him. So, we look around today, and a lot of times we're not offering motives of credibility. We're not witnessing to faith. And that's one of the reasons why there is such a fascination with drugs, with sexuality, with cults, with science and technology, people waiting for the next device to come out, all right? The next phone, I think we should start calling them dumb phones because I think they're dumbing down everything. Everyone's texting constantly, can't write a coherent sentence anymore because we're just texting all the time. All right, we start a rule, we will not answer any phone or nothing at the dinner table. If we're having a meal, forget it. It might be a good thing on Sunday to say, Sunday, we will not use that. I think it would be a good opportunity to get back in touch and hear the voice of the Lord again. But it seems these are all escape valves from the ultimate meaning of life. In our fevered race, so many in our broken world are searching and longing for that which is infinite, but they're always looking at finite things, this cult of things, and of course it's doomed to failure. But in our Catholic faith served by theology, the highest of sciences, which studies God and things related to him, that's where we find the ultimate answer to human life. In the words of Blessed Paul VI, evangelization is necessarily, quote, a clear proclamation that in Jesus Christ, the Son of God made man, who died and rose from the dead, salvation is offered to all men as a gift of God's grace and his mercy. So apologetics is nothing more than an operation on this message that makes that message appear to be credible in the face of objections. And John Paul was very strong on apologetics. Listen to what he said. And it's interesting, his insight into modern man and the way men are. He says, to today's adult who is only seemingly thoughtless and indifferent, we must above all return to explain all the motives of rational credibility proper to Christianity, whose historical character must always be stressed 
In fact, it is possible to demonstrate that God has revealed himself to humanity through Christ the Redeemer. Now, apologetics traditionally is divided into three parts. There are three parts that it is divided into logos, pathos, and ethos. Let's start with logos. Logos refers to the essential message. It is the content of the faith. It is the logic. It is the proposition, the truth of the words. To defend God's words in scripture and tradition, we have to use good theology. And our theology should be orthodox and romantic in the Chestertonian sense. It shouldn't be humdrum, boring, as if you're teaching dogmas that bear no relationship to reality or life. All right? So there has to be that romantic Chestertonian element to it. We want grounded, joyful converts. And the strategy in apologetics in Logos always involves a two-pronged attack. First, you want to show that the objection is ill-founded. It's based either upon ignorance or bad philosophy. So you want to show it's ill-founded. And secondly, we want to show that the proposition is worthy of belief that it contains nothing contrary to reason. Even if we can't prove the articles of faith because they're supernatural mysteries, we can show that they are above reason, not contrary to reason. We have to show them as either rationally obligatory to believe or rationally appropriate to believe. Our goal always is to clear away obstacles so the soul can better respond to God's grace. And there are a lot of challenges, and Pope Francis sees these challenges very clearly. That's why he writes, The process of secularization tends to reduce the faith and the church to the sphere of the private and personal. Furthermore, by completely rejecting the transcendent, it has produced a growing deterioration of ethics. Are we seeing that today? A growing deterioration of ethics, a weakening of the sense of personal and collective sin, and a steady increase in relativism. These have led to a general sense of disorientation, especially in the periods of adolescence and the young adulthood who are so vulnerable to change. The vote that just took place in Ireland, where you had like 90% of the young people voting in this way, I think indicates the level of confusion that we are dealing with. And so the idea that there are objective moral norms and that this is not a question of imposing on people. It's proposing what is true, what is good. And so the Pope goes on and says, we are living in an information-driven society which bombards us indiscriminately with data. We're just getting data and sound bites constantly. He says, all are treated as being of equal importance, which leads to a remarkable superficiality in the area of moral discernment. And so what does he say we need? In response, we need to provide an education which teaches critical thinking and encourages the development of mature moral values, end quote. Ladies and gentlemen, that's why we need Christendom College and other places like it. <laughs> Pope Francis tells us, thank you. Pope Francis tells us that nobody can go off to battle unless he's fully convinced of victory beforehand. We know that we're going to win. We know that from our faith. He says, if we start without confidence, we have already lost half the battle, and we bury our talent. While painfully aware of our own frailties, we have to march on. Listen to the military sense he gives. We have to march on without giving in, keeping in mind what the Lord said to St. Paul. My grace is sufficient for thee, 
for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so he ends, Christian triumph is always a cross, yet a cross which is at the same time a victorious banner, born with aggressive tenderness against the assaults of evil. Isn't that a great line? That's our marching orders. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Second part of apologetics, pathos. It's the emotive quality of the message, the emotive quality. Remember, the emotions aren't bad. They're alogical. They can be good or bad. But an emotional response to something that is true, that is good, that is beautiful, is part of being a human being. So with pathos and apologetics, we want someone not just to hear about the doctrine of original sin, we want them to experience it. We as human beings, there is something wrong with us. We lie. We cheat. We steal. We kill one another. We get jealous. We speak uncharitably. All right? More positive. When we speak of the Mass, it's his body and blood. It was offered for us. And he loves us so much, he wants to stay with us. He wants to abide with us. And that's why he gives himself in the Eucharist. When we speak of Christ's incarnation, we speak of how the incarnation of Christ, it's the answer to the deepest longing in the human heart. And without Christ and without his incarnation, it is always winter and never Christmas. All right? When we speak of the papacy and the longevity of the church, he did not want to leave us orphans, but he left us in the church the representative of his love. When we speak of the mystery of the Holy Trinity, the most profound image of unity and love, he wants to draw us into an eternal vision of those, along with those whom we love. We will all see this together, and it will cause everlasting joy. How important beauty is. And that's why the Pope says, in our style, when we're talking, we have to talk about essentials, but we should always talk, he says, about what is most beautiful, what is most grand, what is most appealing. You see, there's someone who loves you, and there's someone who has died for you, and he's left you this incredible gift, this great inheritance, and all you have to do is open your heart and say yes. Because if you get the yes, the no's then all make sense. But there's the great yes that we have to lead with in all of those instances. So important for us. Lastly, ethos. Ethos is bonding with those we talk to. A bond of integrity means holiness, essentially. If you're an apologist, you can't be a hypocrite, you can't be a Pharisee, you gotta be holy. The old Latin expression, verba docent exempla traharunt. Words teach, but example draws. People attracted. Draw. As Pope Francis says, we need to remember that all religious teaching ultimately has to be reflected in the teacher's way of life, which awakens the ascent of the heart by the nearness, the love, and the witness. All right? And that's why we can't be an enemy to people as if we're always critiquing and condemning. Even scripture says you do this, you teach with gentleness, with reverence, and insofar as it's possible, live peacefully with everybody. Work for the good of all. Fight evil with goodness. Don't allow charity to grow cold. That's not just a pastoral of opinion of a pope. That's the teaching of God's word in sacred scripture. And Pope Francis warms us with good humor. He says, and I, I, I burst out laughing when I read this, there are some Christians whose lives seem like Lent without Easter, all right? 
And he says, consequently, an evangelizer should never look like someone who's just come back from a funeral. All right? And then he says, one of the biggest threats of all gradually takes shape. And he, interesting expression. The gray pragmatism of daily life of the church in which all appears to proceed normally, while in reality faith is wearing down and degenerating into small-mindedness in our parishes, in our chancery offices, in our homes, where, in our schools, wherever it is. And so he says, a tomb psychology thus develops that slowly transforms Christians into mummies in a museum. <laughs> One of the most serious temptations, he says, which stifles boldness and zeal is defeatism, which turns us into querulous and disillusioned pessimists, sourpusses. That's what he said, sourpusses, all right? But Christ is our great example. Remember on the road to Emmaus, after the greatest scripture lesson in history, what does he say to them? Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things before entering into his glory? And beginning them with Moses and with all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning him. And then remember, he breaks the bread, and when he breaks the bread, they recognize him, and they smack themselves on the head, and what do they say? Was not our heart burning within us? as we walked with him along the road and he opened the scriptures to us. So what did our Lord communicate? Truth, beauty, and a deep bonding. In other words, logos, pathos, ethos. He is our model and our guide. I would like to conclude my reflections this morning with you, if you allow me, one final quote from Pope, Bennett, from Pope Francis, because Pope Francis gets hit on so many times in the media, and I think we've got to read what he teaches. I'm back reading L'Osservatore from cover to cover because the stuff that he says in, in L'Osservatore does not make it in the media. His recent visit to Sarajevo, bringing that war-torn country together, people who lost sons and daughters, and him as Peter strengthening the Catholics and their faith, but bringing others together to live in peace and proclaiming Jesus Christ didn't make any headlines, but that's part of his teaching mission and what he's doing. All right, so ending with the heartfelt words of the Holy Father, and I ask you to prayerfully consider his final exhortation to all of us here to guide us for the rest of the day. This is the Pope speaking to us now. Faith also means believing in God, believing that he truly loves us, that he is alive, that he is mysteriously capable of intervening, that he does not abandon us, that he brings good out of evil by his power and his infinite creativity. It means believing that he marches triumphantly in history with those who are called and chosen and faithful. Notice the martial image. He marches triumphantly in history. Let us believe the gospel when it tells us that the kingdom of God is already present in the world and is growing. And there, here and there, and in different ways, like the small seed which grows into a great tree, like the measure of leaven that makes the dough rise, like the good seed that grows amidst the weeds and can always pleasantly surprise us. The kingdom is here. It returns. It struggles to flourish anew. Christ's resurrection everywhere calls for seeds of that new world. Even if they are cut back, they grow again. For the resurrection is already secretly woven into the fabric of history, for Jesus did not rise in vain. May we never remain on the sidelines of this march 
of a living hope. Thank you for listening to me. Praise be Jesus Christ. Thank you.